You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host for today, Max Monday. And with me in the studio is Phil Henderson, a PhD student in political science. How are you doing, Phil? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So your research looks at the effects of poverty on a community. Can you elaborate that? Right. My research is intensely focused on my own home riding in Ontario, which is the Bruce Gray Owen Sound area. And for folks who are familiar with Ontario, that's about two and a half hours northwest of Toronto. Um, It's the Bruce or the Saugeen Peninsula, and it encompasses a riding of about 100,000 people with only a single major urban community of just about 20,000 people. So it's a largely rural riding. And I guess the reason that I came to that side of this work, and there's another side that we'll talk about, is... uh, my own experience growing up there was very much shaped by the way in which the community is increasingly being hollowed out in terms of its economy. And that's from the tip of the peninsula all the way down the riding. So in the past 20 years, they've lost all but two major factories in Owen Sound. Family farms are going broke at a rate that's consistent with the rest of the country, if not slightly above. And there's a general move from what you would call unionized and secure employment to what a lot of people are now calling precarious employment in the service sector. Precarious employment is the idea at its core that the job that you do or the jobs that you do don't actually pay you a wage that will get you through the end of the month. It won't pay uh, your rent, your hydro, your food, all of that together. What you have to pay out tends to over power what you're actually making in terms of your wages. So these are jobs like Tim Hortons, Walmart, McDonald's, general mall jobs that we used to think of as belonging to teens or young adults, and now they're what entire families are attempting to subsist on. What about things like freelancing and unpaid or um, low-paid internships? Right, and that's certainly um, a big shift in the economy in terms of large urban centers. Mm -hmm. But for the particular situation that I'm investigating, it's not actually that prevalent because for that to be the case, you still need a fairly large financial or productive sector in your economy to actually spawn all of those internships. Owen Sound uh, has maybe three law firms. No major banks are located there. There are no head offices for any companies except for maybe one local construction, but they're certainly not hiring interns. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about who is hollowing out the economy there then. There's a big um, debate ongoing within the literature, and the one side would argue that this is just sort of the natural development of an economy. But the side that I position myself on actually takes a much more, I would consider it a much more serious look at this, and they say that, well, these are actually causes that you can trace to a different way of planning the economy. And so post-World War II, we had what was called the Fordist Compromise, or Keynesian economics, which was the government investing very heavily in the economy. So they would support uh, infrastructure jobs, they provided subsidies to industry, they provided tax incentives to hire new people. And what's happened post-1970s is that 
the shift has occurred, that government is actually withdrawing this sort of active role in the economy where they're actually attempting to ensure that uh, the needs of industry and labor are both met in favor of an involvement in the economy that just benefits industry and the capital class, the, mm -hmm. the owners of industry. So the government involves itself in the form of bank bailouts, but it doesn't involve itself in the way that it used to in terms of protecting manufacturing jobs at Canadian companies or companies that are at least based in Canada. So we see a lot of outsourcing and offshoring. Yeah, so there's a protection of employers, but not employees. That's right. And this type of political economy is what's generally called neoliberalism, where it's a general move towards financialization of all government actions in the economy. So if you can't justify it in terms of either reducing the government's budget deficit or its overall debt in a specifically one-to-one -one ratio, then it can't be justified as government spending. Okay. Do you have an example of financialization? So PPG, which is Pittsburgh Plate Glass, mm -hmm. uh, was a company that existed in Owen Sound from, I think, the mid-60s up until just a couple years ago. I might be getting the original date wrong. But the point is that to produce glass, and it was one of the largest glass manufacturers for uh, windshields and cars in North America, every 25 years it needed to update the machinery that existed in their business. It used to rely on a government subsidy that the union had and the employer had negotiated with the state, that the government would subsidize this turnover. Okay. In the mid-90s, the government withdrew that on the grounds that because it was extra spending that didn't need to occur, they would not give them the money. Yeah. And so when it came time for PPG to turn over its new machinery, it actually didn't have that subsidy. And because of the strength of the union there and the strength of the workers, it was actually cheaper for them to go and find a new factory elsewhere mm -hmm. with all new equipment and a more docile labor workforce that they actually up and left Owen Sound. And so somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 people immediately lost jobs, and that occurred over a longer period where several hundred more people lost jobs because there had been downsizing prior to them actually leaving in 2008. So this sounds like a very scary thing that a neoliberalist society would, I guess, provide, or like, it, it seems like a scary outcome. Is this a positive or a negative in the eyes of uh, neoliberalist advocates? Oh, the advocates of neoliberalism. Yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting question. I think the only fair way to answer that, if I'm adopting the position of a neoliberal, would be to say, well, it depends on what you're using as your markers to judge. Mm -hmm. And their markers are almost all based at the national level, and they're almost solely based on GDP growth okay. and growth in what's the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange, right? Canada's largest business indicator. And so if the results of these changes lead to overall GDP growth mm -hmm. and an overall increase in the TSX, which they have, it's deemed to be a successful policy. And so this is why you can see prime ministers from Mulroney to Cretchen to Harper to Trudeau right now, they all say, well, 
the TSX is at the highest level that it's ever been. And GDP has grown, and it has grown in the last quarter, slower than they expected. But what they miss saying in that is that that growth never actually trickles down in the way that Ronald Reagan famously promised that it would, right? Yeah. So if you're just going to use macro level analyses to understand what your effects on the economy are, you're constantly going to miss the sort of micro level effects that they're having on real people in real communities. Okay, let's talk about how neoliberalization re-entrenches colonization. We talked about that a little bit, um, how it re-entrenches colonization. Can you elaborate? Let's start with, yeah, let's start with colonization. Um, where does that come into neoliberalization? So yeah, because I alluded to there's an entire second half of this thing, which isn't really the second half, it threads throughout. And that's because part of my concern with the literature even the, the literature that I place myself within on neoliberalism, the side that critiques it, in North America in particular, often forgets the fact that this assault on workers is always already predicated on the ongoing colonization of North America. Mm -hmm. And so my work really attempts to situate neoliberalism within that history of colonization. And so I take it as a given looking at the historical record, that the European conquest across North America has been predicated from its, well, not, not from its inception, but from very early on, on the displacement and the erasure, if not the outright murder, of the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. And that that can take many different technological forms, and I mean technology in sort of the widest sense of the word, mm -hmm. that there are different techniques that are used to make that disappearance occur. Very early on, it was famously smallpox blankets, mm -hmm. residential schools. Now we're into the age of formal recognition systems, right? What Glenn Coltart has critiqued as the colonial politics of recognition, where they can say, well, you are a nation, but you lack the sovereignty that the Canadian state has, right? and that we will recognize certain cultural forms of your nationality, but never the underlying sovereignty of you as a people. Mm -hmm. And so neoliberalism is fitted within that wider structure of colonialism. And it actually acts to re-entrench it in a series of complicated ways that we should probably draw out over a couple of questions. But the big thing to think about is not moments of disjuncture, but moments of continuity through all of this. When we think about the historical record of Canada, we can think about Champlain landing on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And then we can think about 1812 and the way in which Tecumseh and other Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples uh, interacted with either the British or the American side of that conflict and in their own conflicts as well. And we can think about the modern treaty process. But what we have to recognize is that the Canadian state and the British project in North America that was the foundation of the Canadian state has consistently aimed to undermine and disavow, pretend as if it doesn't exist, the sovereignty of the peoples who were here before British and European peoples 
and remain here today. So Owen Sound, while it's considered a predominantly rural white area, is founded on the territories of the Saugeen Anishinaabe, or the Saugeen Ojibwe nations at Saugeen and Cape Croker, or Neashingaming. Do corporations like PPG take any initiative to recognize and um, aid, uh, I guess aid is probably not the right word, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. to recognize indigenous people in the area? Is there any like recognition or... Right, is, is even the politics of recognition occurring in Bruce Gray Owen Sound? And the answer to that to a large degree is actually no. And I spend a lot of my time in the first chapter of my thesis discussing this. Yeah. Because it's important to when we think about the Canadian colonial project to mm-hmm. think about it as several projects simultaneously. And they're geographically and temporally based. Mm-hmm. So they, they range across time and across space, right? In British Columbia, the politics of recognition is quite strong to the, the point where the president at this institution will recognize that it's on unceded Coast Salish territory. He very rarely says that the university is literally built on the site of a former Lekwungen village. That seems to get erased. But in Bruce Gray Owen Sound, for a variety of reasons, even that sort of banal recognition, and I don't mean banal in the sense that it's meaningless, but that it often is not followed by an actual politics, doesn't occur. Okay. It, the idea that there were peoples that existed prior to Europeans in any meaningful sense and that continue to exist today is largely erased. So there are two very thriving communities mm-hmm. in the area. They are very seldom visited by any non-Indigenous folks. One of them, well, they both have camps, but they're very rarely ever visited by locals. And yeah, so I would say that there's there's a very minimal, if at all, recognition. Now that's been challenged slightly by some very powerful people. So the Green Party candidate in the former election, Chris Albanati, and the NDP candidate, David McLaren, both do excellent work on the relationship between settlers and indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And they both called that issue to account consistently throughout the election. And there are long histories that I'm sure we'll talk about too, where other settlers have acted to challenge that sort of ongoing erasure. Yeah. But the primary condition that I sort of wanted to explore is this at once knowledge, because we can't pretend as if people are ignorant. Like it is in the collective unconscious that this was not always Euro American space, right? Yeah. But the day to day erasure of that history and that ongoing history. Totally. That's one way that colonialization is still alive in the area, would you say? Yes. Uh, Well, I mean, it's alive because the question has to be posed, when did the colonizer ever leave? Okay. Right? Yeah. Uh, We like to, I think, in academic circles, often talk about sort of the postmodern, the postcolonial. We put these posts on, and the question has to be asked, 
well, where is that post located Mm -hmm. and what are you tying to it? Now, that's not to say that there aren't forms perhaps of uh, decolonization that don't require exodus. I'm not the person to speak about what those forms have to look like. But if you can't even recognize the history that's led you to the current moment Mm -hmm. and the current conditions then certainly you can't start staking posts in any kind of colonialism. Yeah. Do you think that it's important for us to move toward an anti or a post a neoliberal viewpoint or society mm-hmm. uh, to help Owen Sound, the Owen Sound area and other areas like it? Mm-hmm. Let me Let me answer it this way by saying... What I think we need to recognize is the sort of intrinsical link between at once the poverty that is increasingly exacerbated in Owen Sound Mm -hmm. and the system of colonization that has led to the present moment. And by that I mean it's fine to, as somebody who opposes neoliberalism, take up a... Keynesian position where the state needs to become active in the economy again, Bernie Sanders, right? Or it's fine to take up a socialist position where the state needs to take over certain industries. It needs to socialize, say, extraction or whatever, right? You, You hear this all the time on certain segments of the Canadian left where they say, well, the real problem with the tar sands in Alberta Mm -hmm. is that all of the profit is being privatized and they miss the fact that those alternatives those leftist alternatives to neoliberalism Mm -hmm. contain within them the seeds of colonization still they normalize it so if our project is merely to end the neoliberal hollowing out of the state's involvement in the economy Mm -hmm and just to re-entrench the state, then the question becomes, are we not re-entrenching the claim of Canada over these territories that it has never held a truly legitimate claim to in a sort of univocal way, right? There are complicated histories with treaties that deserve a lot of attention, and I doubt that we could get very deeply into it in this conversation. So it's not to say that Canada has no claim to space, but that's a claim to space that it continually is erasing where it originates from. Mm -hmm. And so if our politics in opposition to neoliberalism, in opposition to growing poverty across the country, doesn't at once take into account that we might be complicit in and re-entrenching colonization, then we're not really engaging in a politics that I think of as fulsome or worthwhile because we continue that same disavowal that's been constitutive of the present moment. So you are often, with your degree um, and with your research, you're often going uh, to and from Owen Sound and uh, we know that you grew up in Owen Sound, mm-hmm. and you're very much uh, an activist right. in Owen Sound. Uh, ta- let's talk about, a little bit about your activism. Yeah, so Owen Sound is and always will be in a very complicated way home. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of something that I've had a lot of conversations about with people 
at home because I use uh, a word to describe non-indigenous people in my thesis, settler, that a lot of people who are, I would call them, settlers, uh, have contested in a variety of ways. Some much more valid than others. Some people find it offensive. That's not something that I'm overly concerned with, frankly. I've never been worried of uh, rustling anybody's jimmies at home. So, but the the term settler too, I also take to mean a certain amount of, and the word itself implies it, emplacement. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why I do go home and why I do write about this because I grew up there, I have deep connections there, and that requires a sense of obligation, I think. So I do do quite a bit of work there, and when I'm at home, I've engaged in several different campaigns. I hesitate to call myself an activist only because I know many activists who are much more committed to consistent work than I am. The reality of being a graduate student and sort of filtering back and forth, I think, lends me much more to like a term of co-conspirator or ally, something like that. Mm -hmm. But because I'm not constantly on the ground there doing the necessary work, uh, there are people who deserve the word activist much more than I do. How does your co-conspirator status play into your studies? I have for my entire adult life identified quite firmly with a leftist tradition Mm -hmm. Um, and that informs many of the basic assumptions that underlie a lot of my work and there are many assumptions that underlie it as with everybody's work but what i found increasingly problematic were the silences that occur in spaces of activism and so there are many various groups in Owen Sound that do excellent work. But there are also, in their doing those works, many silences that occur. And this is changing. The different people are bringing different things to the forefront. And so my work in that sense is very much directed at those particular people too. The general target of my thesis is settlers in general. I take that as a given that as a self-identified settler, I have an obligation to speak from that position and to those individuals. And I'm welcome, I welcome critiques from every other position, and I welcome being called to responsibility from every other position. But fundamentally, I'm attempting to bring to bear some sort of obligation on my own community. Okay. But the more particular group are the people on the left in my community who would seek to do good work, but who are recapitulating those same silences, Mm -hmm. who continue to be silent about the ways in which colonization continues to filter through neoliberalism, Keynesianism, the Canadian project in general. Yeah, it's fascinating because you told me that in your research you hope to be a challenge to the left. Yes. Yeah. How so? Uh, let's elaborate more on um, on how you attempt to, or how you will attempt to uh, question and um, challenge those uh, perpetrators, the seers and not doers, or the thinkers and not doers, if you will. I'll preface it by saying that it's at no point a denunciation of anyone on the left. Mm-hmm. It's much more a call to 
in that sort of tradition of critical critique mm-hmm. to say you think what you are calling for is an unadulterated form of freedom. Yeah. What you're really calling for is a different form of mastery. Hmm. And it's to say you need to be really, really careful about the projects that you back wholesale, right? And that's not to say don't back any project. It's not to take this thing like everything is horrible, everything is useless, you can't do anything. Yeah. It's to say we can do all of these different projects. We can engage in them, but we have to be very cognizant of what we are occluding in that, what we're not saying, and how we actually can mediate that, or if it can't be mediated, what other projects can we imagine? And so I think a really big thing that I have uh, taken from all of my studies and have tried to put into my work is what Paulette Regan from UBC has called restoring. Mm-hmm. And that is we need to figure out the ways in which the stories that we tell ourselves about the development of Canada or about the impover- impoverishment in Bruce Gray Owen Sound, what those things include and what they are missing and then how we can tell a more fulsome story. Mm-hmm. And so if the general story, and it is the general story in Owen Sound, is that things are getting increasingly impoverished because people in Toronto are taking our tax money and building the TTC or they're building new roads or Kathleen Wynne is squirreling our money away somewhere. These are things that I hear regularly at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, etc. What it occludes in that is that the policies that are enacted the this sort of neoliberal turn that we've been talking about mm-hmm. are to a large degree pushed most forcefully by the very people who folks in Owen Sound are electing. Mm -hmm. And the sort of primary villain in all this, if I was to villainize someone, is the current MP, who is a guy called Larry Miller. He's a staunch conservative and of the reform branch of the conservative party, right? So the thing is, is that people love Larry. He is considered a good old boy, he is widely lauded for, you know, sending Christmas cards to people's grandmas, birthday cards when they turn 90, this sort of thing, right? But all the policies that Larry has voted for, and you can track them through his voting record, are to decrease taxation on the richest, to defund certain essential services. I will say, to his credit, he has been very good at uh, voting against anything that would defund farmers, but that's because that's his major voting block. And even then, if we take sort of a macro view of it, he did vote with the rest of his party to destroy the wheat board, which affected farmers across the country. But they, they love the sort of cult of personality that exists around him, right? This sort of, well, he was a farmer himself, he grew up here, he's lived here his whole life, He's not one of these city folk that like went off, got educated, he farmed, he became a local mayor, now he's the MP, and I have his cell phone number so he must be a good guy. Meanwhile, the policies that he's enacting are the ones that directly immiserate livelihoods there. And there's no ability to connect these two things, right? Mm -hmm. It's seeming cognitive dissonance on a mass level. And so then the question becomes, well, what sort of other way of telling these stories can we we think about and so in the 
second chapter of my thesis, I spend a lot of time talking about, well, okay, it's not just that Larry is this sort of one-off thing that now we have this nostalgic vision of the past. It's that the entire, this is contiguous with the entire project of Canada as such, right? And particularly the sort of political culture that's always existed in Bruce Gray on sound. But when it's met with different challenges, it sort of re-entrenches itself. Mm -hmm. So we've always been in an age where the Canadian colonial project has been challenged. That much is true, that it's always been challenged every step of the way. Mm -hmm. What is perhaps shifting is that Canadians are less capable of looking away from it as a mass group. But what that gets coded as at home is bleeding hearts in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal just want to give everything away, yeah. basically. They have a guilty liberal conscience, and it's only people like Larry with this sort of staunch salt-of-the-earth attitude that are going to defend what's rightfully ours. And that sort of story that people are constantly telling themselves has so many violent erasures built into it, right? That it erases that what's rightfully ours only became such with big scare quotes around it through violence, through manipulation, through violation of treaty after treaty after treaty. Yeah, and this idea of, well, if it's not going to be us, then it would have been them sort of deal. Right. If not us, somebody else, yeah. right? Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. I've noticed, or I guess even um, in general, political science is seen very much as like a theoretical science. And it seems as though a lot of the things that you've talked about, uh, you know, neoliberalism, the Keynesian, um, a Keynesian government, um, what have you, it's all very theor theoretical stuff and things that we can talk about in theory. How do we take this theory and put it into practice and, um, and really figure out a way to make things better for Indigenous communities in Owen Sound, uh, Busquet Owen Sound, and around Canada. There's a lot to unpack in that. <laughs> Let's start with um, how do we take theory and put it into practice? Sure. Okay. I sort of categorically reject the distinction that has been told to me since I started in the academy, which is, oh, you do theory. And... I deal with practical matters. Mm -hmm. This is something, I went to Western University and it is a very sort of staunchly analytical school. It's what you would call like a positivist form of political science. It's very much concerned with institutions. It's very much concerned with voting behaviors, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There are good people there too. I should not disavow the entire institution, but I, I reject this idea of you do theory I do practical matters. What I do is I acknowledge and stake out the assumptions and the normative claims that I'm making, the claims about how the world ought to be. People who claim to be doing practical politics, the people who study voting behavior, have just merely neglected to stake out their normative claims. They are engaged in just as much a theoretical model as I am mm -hmm. in the sense that you have to theorize that voting behavior 
is something that actively matters to actually consider that like the worthy way of spending your time, right? Yeah. And increasingly, it's it should be, I think it is becoming apparent to the voting public that that's just not the case. That's seen in Canada to a large degree with the exception of the last election where there was the true, like we have to get rid of Harper, but already the tide has shifted on that, I think, or is beginning to shift where there's a staunch critique of, well, what is Trudeau doing that's radically different? He is showing up at Pride events. It's a much better country to be queer in right now. I can say that wholeheartedly. But when it comes to pipelines, where's the fundamental difference? When it comes to tax policy, where's the fundamental difference? Mm -hmm. So these people who are engaged in what appears to be much more practical things are just neglecting to actually answer a whole series of questions that come out of that. Now, all of that is to say that the theoretical models that we're using and that we're, I'm staking out actively mm -hmm. are what then I bring to activist circles. So when I was at home last, we were having a discussion about Trump, right? And the way in which Trump sort of mirrors and reflects Bruce Gray Owen's sound too, what I was talking about with like Larry's sort of good old boy image. And somebody brought up the point of, well, you know, it's just because people are, you know, increasingly precarious and they want like some sort of thing to grab onto that makes them feel much safer, right? And this person pinned it on neoliberalism. It's like, oh, it's neoliberalism, like back in the good old, and basically this is what he was doing, back in the good old days in the 50s and 60s when neoliberalism wasn't the, the paradigm of government when we actually had heavy state involvement and the middle class was thriving. Well, that was the fantastic time, right? And so the question that I raised immediately was, well, when you say neoliberalism, how are you going to separate that from capitalism proper and then from colonialism? Because the three things within Canada are always already mixed into one another. Mm -hmm. How does the Canadian state extract any sort of resource and in a capitalist mode or in a socialist mode and not at once continue to reinstantiate colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we got into a really interesting question of, well, it's not so much that people are now feeling precarious and that this is why they're turning to Trump. It's that the system of capitalism, colonialism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, is now affecting them in a direct way. Mm -hmm. And they have this nostalgic sort of yesterday that we want to go back to. And it can take the progressive side, like what my friend insisted on, or it can take the aggressive side, which is the Trumps, it's the Larry Millers. Yeah. But both of these two things neglect to remember that this vision never actually existed. There was never a day in the 1950s when Leave it to Beaver actually represented like <laughs> the fulsome view of what Canada was. Because yeah. if we want to take like my dad's generation as the example, he grew up as a baby boomer born in 57, best time to grow up basically, if you're a white man yeah. in Canada. If you were a woman, it took a long time before the women's movement actually made you even roughly equal. And then we don't even have... Uh, actual equal pay to this day. Mm -hmm. If you're indigenous, that's when the residential school system was still at its peak. 
Not to mention the pollution that was occurring from industry around reserve lands still to this day, et cetera, et cetera. So what I insisted on in this conversation was we can't have these nostalgic ideas. If we're going to be truly committed to social justice, we actually have to at once recognize the value of former political projects mm-hmm. and reject the nostalgia or the, f- the fakeness that they also bring with them. Okay. And this is how we are going to take this theory and put it into practice and help um, indigenous communities around Busquet, Owen Sound, and other places in Canada? Well, there's, there's another thing in that, too, where it's not that I reject the language of help, mm-hmm. but I do want to sort of push back on the idea that these are people who need us to come and rescue them, too, yeah. right? Yeah, because that creates a savior complex. That's exactly right, mm-hmm. um, which is probably the left's biggest guilt, right, is constantly feeling as if it needs to save other people. Okay. What we need to have is real acknowledgement of solidarity. So it's not that we need to save the Saugeen Anishinaabe, but it's that we need to recognize that we all have certain things in common and it's we need to have a livable planet. We need to actually live in a situation where we are not forced to compete with one another for our daily survival, where we're not forced into foreign adventurism and global conquest to sustain an unsustainable way of living. Now, this isn't then to be conflated with some form of humanism, mm-hmm. where I'm looking for like a kumbaya moment where it's like we're all humans, we're all the same. We have to do that across difference. Yeah. And maintaining a respect for difference that is at once cognizant of sort of what makes you and I or myself and uh, an Anishinaabe person different doesn't become something that's also unbridgeable too, Mm -hmm. that there are common interests. And so I look at something like Standing Rock, which is happening right now, and the claim that has been made there is that every single human suffers by this pipeline going through because Mm -hmm. the second that that pipeline bursts, the Missouri River becomes undrinkable. And that is the exact sort of like real material acknowledgement outside of nostalgia, outside of some sort of humanism that can actually build a a real political project. Mm -hmm. The problem becomes that there are a lot of blinders to getting there, right? Because people are suffering from the current economic situation. So are you willing as many communities seem to be, and I mean that in the literal sense of many different communities too, to uh, allow a pipeline on the promise of a a few short-term jobs with the risk of long-term destruction. Okay. Right? Yeah, that's a a good question and hopefully we'll be able to find a way to um, to answer that, I guess. (laughs) Yes. Cool. So I I guess that's all my questions for you today. Uh, Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV 89.3.